0: Hello, this is Michael Stone, the host of We Earth Radio, where we have conversations that make a difference. We're committed to bringing you leading-edge thinkers in the areas of environmental restoration, social justice, conscious evolution, and spiritual fulfillment. In our programs, we look for positive solutions to local and global issues that leave you touched, moved, and inspired to action. Our weekly guests include local and global experts and concerned citizens working together to heal the wounds that separate, alienate, and marginalize people. Welcome, this is your host, Michael Stone, and I have been so looking forward to today's guest. Daniel Siegel, MD, is an interpersonal neurobiologist, clinical professor of psychology, at UCLA David Jeffen School of Medicine. He's a founding co-director of the UCLA Mindfulness Awareness Research Center and the executive director of the Mindsight Institute. He's the author of Brainstorm and Mindsight, the co-author of Parenting from the Inside Out and The Whole Brain Child and many other books he's either co-authored, edited, or written and he's the proud father of three children in their 20s. Welcome. Thank you,
1: Michael. Thanks for inviting me. I appreciate being here.
0: It's really great to have you. I've been looking forward to it, and I love your work. And maybe we can start out and talk about what's an interpersonal neurobiologist, for those who uh, haven't heard that term before.
1: Absolutely. Well, the term interpersonal neurobiology is a term i made up just to refer to this field that my colleagues and i work in where we combine all the fields of science together into one framework so imagine taking all the deep dives into the way we study reality with anthropology studying culture or sociology studying group behavior or Examining, for example, linguistics and how the words we're using right now with each other, Michael, shape how we understand our connection with each other. Or the experience of psychology, where you study memory and emotion and thought and all the other mental processes like consciousness that we have. And then imagine going into the field of biology, which includes, of course, neuroscience, genetics, and all sorts of other aspects of how our bodies function and then looking at chemistry, the way molecules interact with each other, and then looking even at physics, the properties of the universe that we can study using the field of mathematics. So we take all these fields and more and combine them into one framework to ask basic questions like what is the human mind? What is a healthy mind? And what do we need to do to bring health into not just our inner lives, but into the relational world, including the ecological systems in which we all live.
0: Hmm. Well, you just asked the first question as far as I'm concerned, what is a healthy mind? Let's talk about the mind and what it is and what's a healthy one.
1: Yeah, well, the fascinating thing about the mind is that uh, in the fields that study it, let's say psychology, and I'm trained uh, in psychological research, attachment research, or psychiatry, I'm a clinical professor of psychiatry, but I'm trained in psychology. Um, you know, as a psychiatrist, we're the medical branch of this larger field that deals with the mind. And those two fields do not have a definition of what the mind is. They have all sorts of descriptions, uh, but they actually don't define the mind. The same is true even with a field called philosophy of mind. In fact, in that field, one is told not to define the mind. So. For me, back in 19, oh, I don't know, uh, must have been 80, 81, I dropped out of medical school because I wanted to know what the mind was, and my professors of medicine were ignoring it, acting like mind was just an equivalent for brain activity, which is basically what Hippocrates said years ago, and what we know now is that mind includes subjective experience it includes the way you know you're having subjective experience like the feelings you have for example the thoughts you have these you know through consciousness and then it also includes something called information processing and something else called self-organization so we offer a definition of the mind one facet of the mind as the following thing we see it as an emergent property which is a mathematical term something that's arising from the interaction of things and what the things are that we see as the system of mind is energy flow certainly through your head but also through your whole body but not limited by skull or skin it also includes your interactions with other people and the planet around you so this energy flow we see is the fundamental system of mind and mind one facet of it is an emergent self-organizing, which is a mathematical term, a self-organizing process that's both embodied and relational, and it regulates the flow of energy and information.
0: Most people, I would say, Dan, have mind and brain collapsed. So can you distinguish that for us?
1: Absolutely. This is a collapse that's happened for 2,500 years since the time of Hippocrates. William James in 1890 in the principles of psychology, the Father of modern psychology reaffirmed that, and it's a very common statement to say mind is just a synonym, it's a word meaning brain activity. And that might ultimately be true, but the reason I think it's not true, and why in all the books I've been writing the last 20 years, you know, have tried to articulate the science behind saying mind is broader than the brain and bigger than the body because. Let's start with relationships. What happens with a child when she or he is born is that they're immersed in a sharing of energy and information flow between the body they're born into and the world around them, in particular, the world of other people. And as an attachment researcher, what I'm trained to do basically is study the patterns of energy and information flow sharing which you can use as a way of defining a relationship and your feelings your way of thinking the meaning of life your sense of wanting to live or to die purpose all these things emerge out of a relationality that can be seen as energy and information flow patterns that are not constricted by skull or skin And so the first starting place is that for me as a researcher, to understand how the mind of a child emerges within the relational communication of parent with child, required to go beyond what was talked about for 2,500 years, that the mind is just what happens in your head. And to look at it as more something emerging. And when you say, well, that sounds a little hokey, or you're from California, that's kind of loosey-goosey. Well, the mathematics of complex systems is not loosey-goosey. It's where the notion of emergence comes from. And if you're just a linear thinker, just saying A goes to B goes to C, the concept of emergence makes no sense. But if you're a systems thinker, then you realize that the whole is greater than the sum of its parts. There's a synergy. And that is what emergence is. There's something emerging from the elements of a system like clouds in a sky, you see their shape, but it's simply composed of water molecules and air molecules. The shape is an emergent property of the complex system of clouds. What I'm suggesting to you is that the mind is an emergent phenomenon of energy flow which sometimes has symbolic value called information so it means something other than just itself so energy and information is a little redundant but it's helpful to remind ourselves you can go blah blah that's blah, 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 blah. pure energy or i can say good morning michael and that is a symbol it's in energy in formation so it's information that stands for something other than itself so for me mind in all its facets actually, is likely an emergent phenomenon of energy flow happening in your head, for sure. Neuroscience is great, but it's happening throughout your whole body. So being in touch with what goes on throughout the body, including the heart, especially in the intestines, and what happens right now between me and you and everyone listening to us. The mind emerges in an embodied way and a relational way. It is not the same. As brain activity even if brain activity profoundly influences it even by the way if it were hundred percent just happening in your head which i don't think is true but even if it were true it wouldn't make it the same as brain activity
0: mm. wow so much in what you say so i'm going to go to one of my standard things that i talk about because i think it really fits here to elucidate on what you're talking about and that is when I've often said to audiences that the heart of all suffering is the myth of separation, that we are separate from our bodies. We're separate from each other. We're separate from our emotions and our feelings and all of this, this myth that we live inside of. So you're creating, you're talking about a relational model of emergence where the mind, the heart, the gut actually are, the receivers, the brain, or the three different, would you say three different minds or brains? I'm not sure.
1: Well, there are many aspects of the mind, but in the, in the terms of the neural networks, where you, you literally say three brains.
0: Three brains, and, yeah.
1: Brain, heart and, brain, gut brain. Mm-hmm.
0: So, you know, when I hear this, it's very hopeful because what you're talking about is the possibility of change and transformation in the human system that there's a possibility that we are not stuck in this I-hood, I call it, this identity, but actually every conversation we have and every interaction we have is the potential to become new human beings. Am I following you correctly on that?
1: I think you are. I mean, that's the beautiful thing about the scientific concept of emergence Mm -hmm. is that if you can find what are called the constraints, or the conditions, both relationally, like a person being disempowered because of the color of their skin, or dehumanized because of the gender that they have, or the non-gender identity they have, or even historical things, like the ones you are, are open about, about trauma. You know, you can understand these conditions, these constraints in mathematics, what you call them. You can liberate those constraints, you can alter the constraints to allow the emergence To arise in a different pattern and when you come to your original question what's a healthy mind we started with the first part of that about that question which is what is the mind now you could say what's a healthy mind and a healthy mind in uh, this view would be a mind that's optimizing self-organization now that's a mathematical term i just said so let's unpack it complex systems naturally regulate their own unfolding and they do this with a very simple process that can be described as differentiating the elements and then linking them. Now in math there's no name for that linkage of differentiated parts so I just simply name it with the word integration. Mm -hmm. You could call it you know foobi-boo. it doesn't matter the the idea is we're defining this term boo or we'll call it integration because people relate to that, as the linking of differentiated parts. Now, amazingly, when the system is optimizing self-organization, when it does that by linking differentiated parts, it flows as if it were a river in a state of harmony with five characteristics that when you rename them, reorder them, they spell the word FACES, the acronym. F is for flexible. Mm -hmm. A is adaptive. C is coherent, which is the mathematical term for resilient over time. E is energized, and S is stable. So flexible, adaptive, coherent, energized, and stable is the face's flow of optimal self-organization. It's like a river, and on one bank outside the river is chaos, and on the other bank outside the river is rigidity, chaos being complete unpredictability, things being out of control, rigidity things being completely predictable and unchanging. Now, what's interesting is that every psychiatric disorder in the Bibles that exist, of psychiatric disorders can be reinterpreted as having symptoms of either chaos, rigidity, or both. Mm -hmm. And amazingly, every study ever done to date that examines disorder, has found impaired integration in the head brain in the way the brain and the head is connected to the body or the way the head and the brain is connected to the outside world. There's impaired integration in every disorder ever studied. And amazingly in 2015 Smith et al showed, because people always say, where's your study? And, you know, I'm reviewing 3000 studies now for the third edition of the developing mind that I'm finishing up just this week. And In this perspective, Smith and and colleagues found the one brain-in-your-head predictor of well-being is how integrated your brain is, described how interconnected the connectome is. And that's basically the differentiated areas and how they're linked. So there's a ton of support, we wouldn't say proof, for the following simple statement. A healthy mind is a mind that creates integration, the linkage of differentiated parts within the body, including its brain and within the relational fields in which we live.
0: Well, so much in that. So a healthy mind then would have energy, information flowing and would create greater capacity for being. Is that, you know, being healthy? I'm just trying to wrap my head around what you're saying. I'm reminded of the whole developmental thing you have about the yes and the no aspects.
1: Yes. Well, Uh, I think the the intuitive take on what you just said, it creates a greater capacity for dropping into a state which we could simply define as presence.
0: Mm
1: -hmm. Right? And that's the yes state that you're next in, Talk, bring you up and I think that's right on the money that you know when you are in this flow of optimal linking of differentiated parts the portal through which that integration arises <clears throat> can be simply called presence and in the book mind and the book aware especially the book aware I give the steps that you can cultivate yourself to drop into presence and allow integration to arise. And what's so fun about that is it's not only based on science, but there are very practical ways that you can do that.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, I I wanna take that into the, the mindfulness and if we're gonna talk a little bit about the new book that just came out, Aware the Science and Practice of Presence. So we're right in alignment with that. And the three key component that you begin to talk about are focused attention and open awareness mm-hmm. and i call it loving presence i think you have intentional kindness or something like that i can't remember Kind
1: intention exactly, intention. exactly. Yeah.
0: so can you talk a little bit about the development of that and and how creating this healthy human being that these aspects are necessary for us to develop, particularly since we're constantly being fed by the field of misinformation that we live in.
1: Right, exactly. Well, this is the interesting thing when you go to the science of everything. You can bring things down to a fundamental way where if you as a person living in a body start to understand the grounded nature of these things. Let's say the three things you're talking about, I call them pillars. These three pillars allow you to say, if I can de- develop focused attention, focusing on one thing at a time, and you know, as a model of this, we use this wheel image where we put the things that are known on the rim and the experience of knowing, which is one way of defining awareness, In the hub and we say you can take a spoke of attention let's say and focus on hearing and let everything else go but just let sound fill awareness and so you're doing one at a time focused attention and now you move over to sight as you let hearing go and just move to light and you go all around the rim where you do the first five senses you then move over to the interior sensations of the body which a lot of people may have trouble with, but it's really important to be able to do that. And then you move over to mental activities in the third segment of the rim, the body sensations being on the second, and then you move over finally to your relational sense on the final fourth segment. And what's interesting about that is in the first two segments, you're focusing attention very directly, hearing, seeing, etc. When you move to the third segment, you actually open awareness. Now, where's awareness on this wheel? It's in the hub of the wheel, the knowing. If I say, good morning, Michael, you have the good morning, which is sound in this case, or you see my lips moving, good morning, and that's all rim stuff. Those are the knowns, but the experience of knowing, being aware is represented in the hub. So in this third segment, you open awareness by not focusing on any particular mental activity and even At some point you bend the spoke around right into knowing itself. So you experience awareness of awareness, this wide open state. And then you straighten the spoke out and move it over. And this time you're now moving it over to relational sense and you're developing kind intention. I was teaching with Sharon Salzberg once and I said, Sharon, what really is loving kindness? And she says, it's really awareness of our interconnections. And that's exactly, what you do in this fourth segment. And I was presenting this to Richie Davidson's lab, and they said, You should put in these statements of loving kindness because we've shown they produce these positive things in scientific studies. So it's a scientifically based practice, the wheel. So I put them in. Anyway, so in one practice, you see just an example. There are lots of practices. This one, you get all three in one practice. Hmm.
0: So let's go through a little. Well, actually, Before we do that, I wanted to ask about, a little bit about how we dissociate and about trauma. Yeah. And I know you've worked in organizations a fair amount and that's my, that's actually my background is organizational development.
1: Oh really? Okay.
0: Yeah. That's what I did for almost 40 years. And one of the things I know, I also studied with Gabrielle Roth for 40 years, uh, the Five Rhythms and that particular oh my God. map. What do you hear about that? I would love to talk to you about that. <laughs> in fact, I've done that. it in Ireland even. I didn't get John there, but.
1: Oh my anyway. God, well we should talk uh, about
0: that. But But what I find, it's the old James Joyce, Mr. Duffy lived a short distance from his body kind mm-hmm. of thing that, most of us are pretty disembodied, number one.
1: I know, I know, uh, it's so
0: true. And, 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 and then to be able to look at the emotions, which are, of course, of the body, the feelings, and then the mental activity. If you're disembodied, we're already, already starting from a place that's twisted and, and doesn't give us accurate information.
1: Yep, yep, yep.
0: So what are your thoughts about looking at this as we get deeper into the healthy state the healing of this disembodiment and the recognition and and then you know before we can get to the connection with others we have to get to that place
1: yeah oh god these are such great questions michael Let, let's start with the body you know when we're born of course we're born into a body and the sensations of the body are a deep source of Emotion and the work of Jak Panksepp is a beautiful example of feeling that, or Steve Porges uh, or Pat Ogden. These are wonderful writers who work in this area. Uh, Peter Levine um, and the body is a source of our feelings. Certainly, Bessel van der Kolk talks a lot about that too. Um, in terms of interpersonal neurobiology, we see things through a developmental lens that allows you to see that the original source of identity a source of who you are, begins in the body. And then if stuff happens, traumatic stuff happens, uh, which could be developmentally in two broad categories. One is the absence of things that should be happening. So that's called neglect. Mm -hmm. Or the presence of things that shouldn't be happening. And that's called abuse, Mm -hmm. right? So developmental trauma is the broad term we use for abuse and neglect. And in either case, the body becomes, you know, an understandable source of a huge amount of terror, of distress, of unfulfilled longing. And what it means then is that the body is not a safe place for someone who's experienced developmental trauma. Now, the mind has the capacity, because it's a self-organizing process, trying to maintain what's called allostasis, which is not just homeostasis or equilibrium, but being able to both survive and thrive. That's allostasis. It has this drive to achieve that. And so to achieve that, it needs to shut off the source of distress, which, of course, can be the outside world of relationality. But it's also the body which is feeling the feeling around the heart, the intestine, the overall body's state. So anything you can do then to block energy and information flow from the body, from entering the the apparatus of awareness will help you survive. So there become these filters of consciousness that become constructed directly in response to experience but also once you've directly started constructing them you then have secondary ones to deal with your own primary initial reaction you know so for example you can justify why not feeling the body is okay and you become very intellectual or there's all sorts of ways you can look even in the head brain to understand a head brain
0: and they're self-reinforcing, right?
1: Exactly. Yeah. That's called recursive in developmental terms. It self-reinforces exactly like you're saying, its own constructive limitations. And rationalization would be one, one example of that. Now, once you see these constructed layers, and I don't know if we'll get to it, but in Aware, there's a whole model of how you would envision this. But these con- filters of consciousness restrict what you can be aware of And now you may not be aware of the body because that was adaptive to not be aware of the body. So the work to be aware of feelings which come from the body is the work of opening awareness to have what, you know, I'm an acronym nut, so I use the acronym COLE, curiosity, openness, acceptance, and love toward your own emotional state. And the challenge of that is that you are not in control of your emotions. You weren't in control of the traumas that happened. You weren't in control of the neglect or abuse. You were not in control of the emotions that came in response to the trauma. They f- have you feel completely helpless. Sometimes they're filled with shame. Shame is very different than guilt. Guilt is a feeling i have done something wrong, I'm gonna change my behavior. Shame is a feeling, I am defective and there's nothing I can do. So shame comes along with helplessness. It is so painful, you drop it beneath the radar of consciousness, And that's a lot of why
0: people don't feel their body. You've been listening to an interview with neurobiologist Dan Siegel on We Earth Radio. Let's take a little break and hear some music now. Listening to Talking Timbuktu with Rai Cooter and Ali Toure. Let's get back now with our interview with Dan Siegel, neurobiologist. One of the fields that I've spent a lot of years studying is shamanism. And shamanism, they have a thing called soul loss, I'm sure you're familiar with, which is, I would say, very close to dissociation or its loss of essence and that original essence that's there. And one of the things that's really curious to me is how we become this identity, and then that identity, again, is self-reinforcing. We think we are our identity, and we continually find ways to reinforce it. How do we free ourselves from our identity when we think that's who we are and how can mindfulness help us in that process? Is that clear?
1: Yeah, totally clear. Very, very uh, elegant and eloquent. It's a really, really interesting question. And I I wanna try to approach it both in a very succinct way, but also not overlook some of the very important issues that come up with this very clear and Powerful question. So let me start with a few just general points and then maybe you and I could just have an interactive discussion about it to make sure we cover the important elements. The first thing to say is that there are two fields to begin with. You mentioned mindfulness, so there's the whole broad field of mindful awareness and in one perspective, especially from the Buddhist tradition, which inspired a lot of the wonderful research on mindfulness meditation, the idea of an identity that believes its own uh, history and stories is sometimes considered a delusion, is not consistent with reality, and that enlightenment from some perspectives that leaders in this field have, have either been teaching directly publicly or have talked to me when we have private times together You know, for them, the idea of growth and development is to drop into a state of releasing oneself from the illusion of the identity. You know, uh, you're Michael, I'm Dan, this kind of thing. And and I really hear that, and I think there's something really beautiful about it. And at the same time, I'm also trained as an attachment researcher. I study parent-child relationships in our field, there's a beautiful research instrument called the adult attachment interview, which shows that parents who will provide the most connecting and supportive and positive kinds of relationships are parents who have what's called a coherent narrative. They understand where they've been, they understand and feel where they are right now, and they can construct a future that's free and connecting to themselves and and their children because they have a narrative understanding. That is, they've drawn on the past to understand the present and free themselves in the future. Now, that is a coherent narrative. So when I, as an attachment researcher, first accidentally got into the mindfulness field, I was puzzled by the pushback from my emerging colleagues in the field of mindful awareness who are saying that narrative is useless, or even worse, it's destructive, when in fact, my field, attachment research, showed just the opposite. One of the ways of pulling this apart is that the Buddhist use of the term attachment is actually quite different from the research on attachment relationships. Mm -hmm. In the field of attachment research, we study the loving, connecting relationships, which are how a parent is present for their child, how they show up right? And it's parental presence. Whereas the attachment term in Buddhist vocabulary is really more about clinging, you know, like being overly attached to an idea or a concept, including the concept of self. So to pull those words apart and not overlap them, I think that the Buddhist notion of clinging to an identity as a fixed noun-like thing. You are Michael that has these traits and I'm Dan that has these traits and this was my history so if I've been traumatized that's all that I am. That would be clinging to a noun-like view of myself and I wouldn't I wouldn't really be present. I'd be lost in my own noun-like prison. Of It'd either be in the
0: remembered past or the imagined future, but you certainly wouldn't be present inside of that.
1: Exactly, exactly. So now I'm in a prison, I'm not present. So in the field of mindfulness meditation, I think there's a beautiful way of basically, this is now my interpretation, other people may not agree, because I'm kind of an outsider of that field, but in my view, the wheel of awareness, which was developed purely from scientific reasoning, has this way of differentiating the knowing from the knowns. It differentiates the hub from the rim. And in doing that, it frees up this experience of pure awareness. And I think that is where presence comes from. And, you know, the wheel was developed just independently of the whole field of mindfulness and stuff, but I think they're consilient. That is, they have some interesting overlaps. People may not agree or they may agree, I don't know, but. my, my, my view, my perspective, is that what mindful awareness practices do in various different approaches is help you distinguish that. And what's so fun about the wheel as a practice is you get immediate dipping into the hub, and that's where presence comes from. So you can distinguish it from various things that are popping up on the rim. Now, in attachment research, you look for what's called the coherence of a narrative, not its cohesion, which would be a more imprisoning narrative. I'm Michael, these are my features, I'm Dan, these are the features, but a coherent narrative says, hey, I'm born in a body, this body has a history. First of all, it's an evolutionary system, and I'm a mammal, so I need other mammals, I'm social. And hey, I'm a primate, so I have this complex set of social connections, and hey, I'm actually in a human body. I didn't get to be born as a frog or a fish or a tree. I'm a human, so this is the reality. I'm not gonna pretend I'm not in a body, there is a body. And this body needs attachment in order to feel whole. Two things, I get a sense of myself from my attachment relationships, and I get a sense of reality from these attachment relationships, called beautifully by Peter Fonagy, epistemic trust. and. You know, epistemic trust and having a coherent sense of self, these come from our relationships.
0: Mm-hmm. And
1: and if you didn't get the good fortune of having secure attachment and beautiful ways of developing epistemic trust and a coherent sense of self, you know, you got to do a little work. So there's been too many people that my colleagues have seen use mindful awareness to have what's called a spiritual bypass. And they think if they can just meditate enough, they'll be able to avoid the feelings in their body of longing and being disappointed or betrayed, right? And so it isn't that these two are in conflict with each other. It is true that some people doing, let's say, the deep process of growth really need to be meditating also. But a lot of times people who've been drawn to the meditation world really need to be doing therapy, Mm -hmm. and it's not a replacement. Um, So that's...
0: That's a lot. Yeah. Let me uh, first of all let me (laughs) let me tell our listeners I'm very excited about this conversation. We're talking to Dr. Dan Siegel. He's an interpersonal neurobiologist. Um, I think the bottom line of what I want to say about you, Dan, is that what we're talking about today really is at the heart of an evolutionary future that works for all life. If I underlined underscored the importance of of this conversation and the opportunity to to heal there's so many things i want to say about healing i guess i'll I'll go to can always go to my own history which was one of abuse and a lot of death and and a lot of early trauma and it's taken 70 years where i'm just beginning to recognize that in these kinds of conversations that we have, there is the possibility of constant reinvention of ourselves as connected, integrated, whole human beings. It isn't something that's just going to happen to us. There is, as you say, meditation is great and and it is a way that many people do spiritual bypass and even reinforce the results of the traumatic suppression and dissociation use spirituality to continue to go in the same direction.
1: Yeah, exactly. I once took care of a a meditation teacher who, you know, when I said, let's do the adult attachment interview, he refused. I said, well, why are you refusing? He goes, well, isn't that an, an interview that you talk about the past? I said, yeah, he goes, I don't do that. I'm, you know, a mindfulness expert. We live in the present, not the past. Don't you know that? I said, Well, how's that going for you? You know, and it wasn't going so well. His life wasn't so so optimal. Anyway, when he finally did, you know, I said, Look, in the present moment, there are shadows embedded in your synaptic connections in your brain that are embedded in memory of things. And so the idea of liberation is to be able to sit in awareness and say, Bring it on. Mm-hmm. That I'm open to anything about, you know, the past that happened to me you know, in my childhood or whenever, or the future that I'm gonna be facing death or whatever like that. So, you know, that's, that bringing on attitude is very different than saying, I don't go to the past. So when he did, you know, there were huge amounts of trauma that he never talked to anyone about. And to have an interpersonal relationship of trust where he could feel whatever he was feeling in the setting of a connection with another human being expands the compassion field that allows the neural circuits literally in his head brain and their connection with his heart and his intestines. And we know exactly where these circuits are, but that doesn't really matter for our conversation here. But it allows them to open up their channels, literally inside of the nervous system that is allowing an integrated relationship that he and I were able to develop where he could differentiate and link with me. That relational integration became Neural integration inside of him. Mm. His whole life transformed.
0: I want to jump a little bit to another area, but not really. And that's the area, and, and I say this from my own experience because, you know, I did have a lot of trauma. And many of us try to change our mind with our mind, which is really a tough racket to do. But at the same time, as we're beginning to recognize these kinds of wounds one of the things that shifted at some point for me, rather than the shame and the embarrassment and the lack of belonging, the feelings of guilt and shame from my early childhood, began to shift into the gift of my wounding, given it's dictated my entire work and life, issue of how we develop in relationship and the importance of that, if we were gonna go beyond our own story, we need to at least get related with others and have some sense of how the world sees us. We're in a field of trauma, some of it quite deep, uh, things like slavery and genocide and, and these kinds of things. And we exist inside of this field, not just with others, but with the entire culture. We're constantly reinforcing these things that keep us separate. And I'm wondering your thoughts around how to actually be in a dance with that such that we Recognize something that you said earlier that we're always emergent and always changing, that nothing is fixed. I don't know if I was clear on that. I kind of went yeah, off. Yeah,
1: yeah, no, no, I think it's very clear. You know, it reminds me of a paraphrase of a Krishnamurti quote that people have told me about, but the paraphrase I saw was written on a wall in Romania and it said, The ability to adapt to a sick society is not a sign of mental health.
0: Hmm.
1: And <laughs> wow. so when we talk about cultural trauma, we have to be really, really open to discussing this. Um, I'm not sure when this will be aired, but this weekend um, we have a huge conference happening on just this very topic, just your very question, April twenty-six, seven and eight.
0: This actually um, will air tomorrow. Uh, oh,
1: great. So, uh, so if you can come, uh, Uh, to Marina Del Rey in California, Southern California. What I did was invite people to address this exact question you're asking, Michael, about our culture and cultural trauma. And we're doing it through, and just by illustrating who's going to be at this conference, you can get a feeling for what interpersonal neurobiology tries to do in constructing bridges across disciplines. So on the first day, Friday, the 26th, and this really gets at your issue, we have something called awareness-based systems leadership, mm. which in this overall conference called Timeless Wisdom, Timely Action, it allows you to become immersed with my colleagues, Meta Bowl and Diana Chapman Walsh and Otto Sharmer and Peter Senge, Angel Acosta, and others, you know, to look at how you can really examine what the system is doing and how change in a system comes from the inside out mm-hmm. by really using mindful awareness practices as one example, but using insight to then generate action. This is the idea of timeless wisdom, timely action. We then go from there to the beginning of the conference in the evening, Friday where I'm bringing in John Milton and Orlando Villarraga to talk about indigenous cultures and the ancient wisdom that essentially, in terms of your earlier question, the notion of a separate self is a psychotic delusion perpetrated in contemporary culture. It keeps us all isolated. It makes us live life as if we're nouns that are separated, separate self. Instead of more like verbs that are massively interconnected.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And we'll look at the indigenous cultures that John and Orlando work with to see this ancient wisdom that we are a part of a much larger whole. Mm-hmm. Then later in that evening, I work with Conda Mason and Sarah King, two African American women, to look deeply at racial issues, not just of black versus white, but in general, how we make these categories of race. Of gender, of religious differences, and we do us versus them. And this also is a cultural toxicity that doesn't allow us to embrace the larger whole because ultimately, whatever your identity group is, people who wear purple shirts or whatever, you know, whatever this identity is, it keeps us separate from each other. Yeah. And we're going to talk about there is a me in a body, there's a we in our relationality. You integrate them by me plus we equals we. You know, that's that's what Condens and I will talk about. The next morning, Saturday, we dive deeply into practice where John Cabot zinn and I will be leading people through all sorts of practices and diving into this larger notion that who you are is not just a limited separate self. And these ideas get perpetrated in contemporary culture of our separateness through social media. So the next person up in the afternoon is Tristan Harris, who's been called the conscience of Silicon Valley. And Tristan is gonna address this whole notion of how where we're at with the digital age is actually making people feel more separated, not separated, not more connected, ironically. Then we go to Paul Hawken, who has written this amazing book called Drawdown. Mm-hmm. And about what we can do to deal with climate change issues. And Paul will present that. And then R- Richard Schneider will come there. And Richard has just achieved this incredible moment of getting West Papua and in Indonesia to be a wild area preservation. Wow. The largest rainforest in the world after the Amazon. So we'll talk about that with photographs and everything. And then Louis Schwartzberg will do his beautiful work looking at our interconnection with nature. And then we'll have an all-panel gathering with discussion with the audience. And then on the next day, Jack Cornfield and Trudy Goodman Cornfield talk about loving, compassion, and awareness. We then have Helen Wang and Larry Yang talking about the ways in which racial issues have not been addressed in terms of the mindfulness field of either research or practice, Mm -hmm. and looking deeply at that. And then in the afternoon, we go to adolescence with Bonnie Goldstein and Jessica Mori of IBME, Inward Bound Mindfulness Education. And then in the afternoon, we finish it all up with a panel panel, which is basically a pilgrimage I went on with 50 religious leaders, and a few of them will be there, including Reverend Angel Kyoto Williams uh, and Reverend uh, Ed Bacon. And and there we're gonna talk about Pando. Now what what is Pando? Pando is a forest in Utah where there are 47,000 trunks of a quaking aspen tree. And when you look at it, it looks like a grove that is just all 47,000 different trees. When you go six inches beneath the surface, you realize it's one root ball. When you test the DNA, it's the same tree. So this is the icon for us to realize as we get ready for the conference to end that we're all deeply interconnected. So our hope is to build a community. You know, this thing will be recorded and everything, but to be there and to be with people where we're gonna set up basically this Pando-like community, this community where we use awareness-based systems change as our common ground to realize we are not just a separate self, but we're an integrated self of a we, and we go out in the world and together we can make this a much more compassionate, kind and caring place where the planet is no longer a trash can, but just an extension of who we are.
0: Wow, that's a conference I shouldn't miss. Yeah, <laughs> I'd have to do There's, a bit of rearranging to, to get there. But uh, t- tell us again for people who want to, uh, who hear this, can just talk. Yeah, if, if you
1: go to my website, dr, for Dr. Dan, D-A-N-S-I-E-G-E-L, drdansegel.com, and then go to events and just click on events, you'll get right to the registration place. There are spaces left, and we would love to have you. It's going to be a community-building three-day weekend. And, uh, you know, it should be, uh, and you can hear the lineup of the speakers. It's when people see the lineup, they go, oh my God. And I'm really, really thrilled that we'll have this gathering.
0: And is it all day Friday or? uh, Well, there's the
1: pre-conference workshop Friday. That's a separate kind of thing that you you can register at the same time. But the conference itself, the formal conference begins Friday evening at 6.30. Um, But uh, if you want to, Learn from Peter Sangay and Otto Scharmer, these rock stars in the field of systems understanding. Um, it's, if you can make it to that, but that's, that's sort of the pre-conference workshop is what we're calling it.
0: Wow. Um, okay, well, we can talk more about that. We're getting towards the end and so many things I haven't talked about. Now, one of the things I want to tell people on the same website that you said, Dr. Dan Siegel, S-I-E-G-E-L dot com, You have so much information. And one of the things I want to tell people about, we talked about the wheel of awareness. I'd actually uh, optimistically thought we might be able to do a little demonstration. Oh, that's half an hour
1: by itself, yeah.
0: (laughs) But I don't think that's going to happen.
1: You can go to the website and uh, check it out. That's the best way to do it at your own leisure, right?
0: Yeah. And
1: not when you're driving.
0: So here we are, Dan, just to, just to begin to wrap this up a little bit. Here we are, a world caught up in very strange kind of madness. And at the heart of it is this othering, this, this uh, sense of uh, deep separation. And at the same time, we have climate change, we have nuclear proliferation, we have an economic system, which absolutely isn't working for most of the population how can this work that we're talking about if you could bring all this down to really inspire people to get interested in mindfulness and our connection with the world deepening our our connection with not just each other but the natural world and all life what would you do as kind of a closing (laughs) statement yeah i think
1: I think contemporary culture reinforces the belief that we're a separate self. And, you know, we have a me that lives in a body. In uh, Maria Shriver's Sunday paper, I, I wrote a little article for her. If you go to, if you go to that, you'll see a, a little dive into this we notion, M-W-E, me plus we equals we. I think there's an opportunity now as a community of, of people really concerned about our relationship with nature to realize that if we start embracing an integrated identity, sure you have a body, that's very important. Sleep the body well, exercise the body, enjoy the body, treat your body really, really beautifully. But you are also the relationship with other people and with the planet. That's a we. So when you combine me with we, you get a we. And in doing this, there's an opportunity to really, really explore who we are and in a very positive way. So I think we're in a great moment. It's a MUI movement, and I think there's a great chance. It's a win-win-win situation. You individually will prosper, your relationships with other people will prosper, and the planet will prosper when we make this a kinder, more compassionate MUI world. And this is something that we all can do. Mm. And come join us at the conference or go to the website and you'll see lots of opportunities to learn more about this. Yeah. And- Thank you very much. It's been really a pleasure. Yeah, and it's
0: it's just a joy to be with you. I hope this is the beginning of a relationship and that we'll find more opportunities uh, to connect perhaps this weekend. Many Excellent. blessings.
1: Blessings to you, Michael. Thank you so much.
0: Thank you. We Earth Radio is an independently produced program supported by listeners like you. We are committed to bringing you leading-edge thinkers in the areas of environmental restoration, social justice, conscious evolution, and spiritual fulfillment. If you would like to receive our complimentary newsletter, The Well of Light, make a contribution, or listen to any of our past shows, go to our website, welloflight.com. Thank you so much for your commitment to a world that works for all life.